Well, good morning to you. Happy New Year. It's probably a little weird to see me up here as uh, it's been about a year now since I've been able to preach as the Lord has blessed me with silence. And um, I admit, I don't really know how this is going to go. It, uh, I may last five minutes. I may last 25. Uh, but I trust the Lord to give me the words he wants me to speak. And when he's ready to shut me up, then I'll stop. And uh, Pastor Will is my backup plan, and if that happens, then he's got my notes, and he's got the difficult job of, of coming up here and trying to finish the sermon for me. But I uh, appreciate you being patient with us as, uh, as we kind of, I try to work my way uh, back from this voice thing, whatever it is, and I'll have to sip water and take weird breaths and stuff while I'm up here doing it, but um, appreciate your patience as we do that. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 this morning. I want us to imagine, as we kind of start off here, imagine our congregation receiving a letter from the Lord Jesus. Maybe it's an email in 2022, right? But uh, imagine that with me. We receive this letter, and, and it contains instruction and encouragement and warnings about how we're to function as a church this coming year. What would he say about how our church should operate in 2022? What would he say about the kind of church and church members we should be? What would our New Year's resolutions be? What goals should we have? What should we emphasize? What should we do? How should we handle whatever is waiting for us in 2022? What do you imagine that letter would say? Thankfully, we don't have to imagine all that much because it's a letter that's already been written. Uh, it's uh, found in these letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And in Jesus' words to the seven churches, they're as relevant today as they were uh, when, when they were written about eight, uh, 96 AD. The seven churches existed at a time when, when John uh, wrote Revelation, again around 96 AD. They were real churches in real towns and real places in Asia, Asia Minor. And although the majority of the book of Revelation, as you know, is apocalyptic in nature, uh, chapters 1 to 3 are not. Chapter 1 is, is John's vision of the glorified son. It's like verses 1 to 18, and then chapter 2 and 3 are the letters to the churches. And then chapter 4 to the end begins the uh, apocalyptic material. But again, we're going to be focused on chapters 2 and 3. And what we have here to these, in these letters to the seven churches is a set of instructions. They're not necessarily foretelling the future, but they do have prophetic importance. The, these, ma these letters matter to us today because those churches in 96 AD, they can be seen as representing all churches for all time. That's the significance of there being seven letters. John MacArthur explains this saying, seven is God's sacred number. It symbolizes completion, perfection, totality. By choosing seven churches, he is saying, in effect, this is my message to the total church. Although the churches were actual churches existing in Asia Minor, they represent the complete picture of the total church. So when Christ speaks to these churches, he is speaking to all the churches of all time. And this impression kind of gets strengthened by the words that conclude each of the seven letters, uh, where John, John says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So... I guess one takeaway already for us is that no matter the year, the age, the place, or the time, or the circumstances, the, the situation, Jesus speaks to all churches through these letters. They're, they're for us in that sense. And I want to walk you through that here at the beginning because they have tremendous meaning for us today, even though they, they 
often get overlooked by most Christians. And we obviously can't study each of those letters in depth. Uh, that, that could take up seven weeks or seven months even, and, and maybe Pastor Will will do that one day. Um, my goal this morning is just to kind of survey these churches, and I want us to put together a list of what I'm calling resolutions for life together in Christ. So don't, don't think of it as a seven-point sermon, okay? But it's a, it's a list with the main point for us being to do these things together this year. So if you have notes, number one is to love generously. This is to the church in Ephesus, uh, verses one to five, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So Ephesus is a church that's uh, commended for its doctrinal uh, vigilance, right? They were um, sound in doctrine. They patiently endured, but the rebuke from the Lord is that they had lost their first love. And it seems most likely that the desire for sound teaching had created an unloving church culture. The implication of what John is expressing here is not only that had their love for God grown cold, actually their love for others had as well. In fact, there's some scholars that argue that a lack of love for others is actually John's main point in this passage. And that comes from the fact that John often emphasized this in his other letters, right? In 2 John 5, he writes, uh, and now I ask you, dear lady, not, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. In 1 John 3, 10 and 11, he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Another example is 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So John is obviously, he places a premium on loving others, but it's also helpful to remember what Jesus said on this topic, right? He summarized the entire law of God in Matthew 22, 36 to 40. He's asked, he says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replies and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what we can start to conclude here from both Jesus and John, obviously John is writing inspired by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but what we conclude here is that the love of God and love of others goes hand in hand, right? If you're not doing one, you can't do the other. So, so whatever the emphasis is intended here to the Ephesians, the other is also implied, and apparently they're not doing it very well, so Jesus demands that they return to loving generously, that they return to their first love. So what does that look like, right? What's generous love look like? Well, we have to first understand it's not a romantic type of love. The, uh, the word for love in verse 4 is agape love. Agape is not romantic or sexual type of love. The essence of agape love, get this, is, is goodwill. It's compassion and willful delight in the object of love. Agape love involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of the will, right? It involves me saying I am going to express love to somebody else. It's always shown by what it does, agape love. It's visible. 
For example, God's agape love was visibly displayed for us most clearly at the cross, right? Even though we're undeserving of such a sacrifice, God demonstrated his own agape, Romans 5, 8, his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John three sixteen, by this we know agape, same word, that he laid down his life for us and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. So agape love shows proof. And the greatest example is what Christ has done, and therefore we're to love others with that same generous, evident love. As Jesus says in John 13, 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Think about how radical that is for a moment, right? Look around the room, look down the row that you're sitting in. Is that how you love the people you see? Think about these last two years, how we've seen Christian people attacking one another. I think it's safe to say that generous agape love has not been the trademark of Christianity of late. And, and I'm not saying it's easy to love people like this, right? Some of you are harder to love than others, right? And I'm in that crowd. Um, it's not easy. In fact, we're, we're actually inclined by nature to hate God and to hate other people. That's our nature. We love ourselves more. In our nature to love ourselves more than anything else. So this radical, generous love, it's a battle. And it's one that we must consciously focus on and make primary in the life of our church. And, and again, remember, agape is demonstrated love. It's visible love. And I just want to point out, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about generously loving others for the sacrifice of truth either. Right? In verse 2, the Ephesian church is commended for how they cannot bear with those who are evil. And then in verse 6, again, they're commended for hating the works of the Nicolaitans who were uh, heretical and immoral. But in doing so, they'd forgotten Paul's instructions from Ephesians 4.15 that the, we have to speak the truth in love. And so this church was doctrinally and morally pure, and they had a zeal for the truth, but it was cold because they had lost, lost their love for Christ and for other people. So the truth must be spoken, and it must be acted out in love. So I just want to encourage us to be a church like the Ephesian church, right? Let's be sound in doctrine, we are. Let's stand for the truth, we do. Let's be disciplined in, in how we serve, but, but may generous love flow from our hearts towards God and towards one another. Resolution number two is to suffer faithfully. Go into the church in Smyrna. This is uh, beginning in verse eight of chapter two. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the church in Smyrna stands out like the church in Philadelphia. It's the only two that are, that are not rebuked by the Lord. <clears throat> All the other churches are. Instead, he encourages the church as it faces persecution to suffer faithfully. Right? The church must be ready to brace itself and be ready for suffering even to the point of death. In church, there's, there's suffering, there's persecution coming in our future. I hope you realize that. We don't know when, right? Many of us may be long gone before that happens, but it's coming. 
Are, are you prepared for that? We're reminded in the letter to Smyrna that as Christians, we are called to suffer. We're actually guaranteed to suffer in various forms, according to 2 Timothy 3.12, which says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we don't all suffer death and imprisonment necessarily, but we will experience persecution and suffering if we truly desire to live godly lives. And again, I just want to ask, what's that look like? It may not be death or prison, so what should we, expe- what should we expect? I'm glad you asked that, because Jesus has an answer. If you turn to Luke 21, if you want to look at that for a moment. Here Christ is preaching what's known as his Olivet Discourse. It's also recorded in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. He's predicting the destruction of the temple, and that causes the disciples to ask him about the end times. That's in verse 7 of Luke 21. Look at verse 10. Then he said to them, so, so this is what suffering and persecution is going to look like. He says to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And later on in verse 16 and 17, if you go down a little farther, it says, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, now Christ is speaking directly to the disciples, but the, the rest of the New Testament, even Christ's words, actually imply that we can expect the same experience, right? Wars, natural disasters, famines, plagues. We might say pandemics, right? And then there's imprisonment and death. But what I really want to point out to you here is what verse 13 says. All right, if you're wondering kind of what the application is when I say we need to suffer faithfully, I think it's this. Our suffering, verse 13, will be an opportunity to bear witness. That's why we suffer. It's an opportunity to bear witness. These things happen so that we can share our faith with steadfastness and with joy, right? James 1, 2, and 3. Many of you know these verses. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, various, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, we suffer faithfully so that we can actually experience joy. All these things are a testimony so that as we suffer faithfully and we endure, we have opportunity to bear witness. And I'm not a prophet, let's be clear about that. <clears throat> as I read Luke 21, 13, about a year ago, it, it kind of confirmed for me what I believed ever since the whole pandemic, uh, pandemic started. I believe the reason that God brought it, the reason God has not yet removed it, is because it's our opportunity to bear witness. And frankly, I don't think we've done a very good job. And I'm not necessarily talking about, when I say we, I don't mean our church specifically. I just believe Christianity, evangelicalism at large. Because if we think about what's happened, this kind of goes back to the first point a little bit. If we think about what's happened when the pandemic hit, fear replaced faithfulness. And fear became the trademark of a lot of evangelicals. Churches closed their doors at a time when unbelieving people in this country became more aware of death than maybe ever. 
and, and many of them were seeking spiritual solutions. But many Christians and many churches, they closed themselves off. M many of those churches will never reopen. It destroyed them. And we've watched, again, Christians turn on each other, right? Families and neighbors and friends, they've isolated and ostracized and cast one another out. If we look around here, there's, there's people who are no longer here. And, and it's not all because of this, but some of it is, right? They've either done some of those things or they've been on the receiving end of some of those things, and neither one is right. The gospel's at stake, right? It's our number one priority, and yet many who call themselves Christians, they've given priority to something else. It's very clear to me that the Lord has used the pandemic to refine his church, and the combination of political and cultural unrest, and then you, you throw a pandemic in there, right? It has caused fractures and divisions in even the most healthy of churches, and for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, so that we can bear witness to its freedom from fear and its power to save, we must come together. We must suffer faithfully together and love one another generously. And we have to allow for differences of opinion on things that are not primary or even secondary gospel issues. We can suffer faithfully and live boldly bearing witness as a church because we have nothing to fear. We don't fear plagues and pandemics or persecution or physical death because it's not the ultimate reality. John began this letter to Smyrna saying, look at verse 8. These are the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life because we belonged to the first and the last. The one who died and came to life, death has lost its sting. Because he died and came to life, he gives us victory over death. We can sing 1 Corinthians 15, right? Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? So whatever comes this new year and for the rest of the, your life, let's suffer faithfully together, regardless of the threats, remembering that when we are suffering, it's our opportunity to bear witness. Let's look now at the letter to Pergamum, and this number three is to discipline willingly. Going down to verse 12 of chapter 2. We see the need to discipline willingly. To the angel of the church at Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. <clears throat> I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Who was killed among you, where Satan dwells? <clears throat> but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also some of you who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I was listening to a recent Ligonier conference. It was a Q&A session, and one of the pastors there <clears throat> It was Sinclair Ferguson, if you know that name, a wonderful, wonderful man of God. He was asked, what is the greatest threat to Christianity today? And it didn't take him half a second. Uh, he responded, Christianity today. Right? The greatest threat to Christianity today is Christianity today. The church is the greatest threat to the church. And you get that, right? Persecution is not a threat. Anytime the church is persecuted, what happens? It expands. It grows. 
Death is not a threat. Government and politics do not threaten the church. Islam or other religions or, or cults, they're not a threat. It's the people inside the church that pose the greatest threat to the church. And the church at Pergamum is an example. They were holding fast Christ's name. They were not denying the faith, right? But they allowed false teaching from the inside. And wherever there's false teaching, sin follows. We're about to see that. It wasn't coming from the outside, but it was from the inside of this church. And therefore, Christ says to repent in verse 16. If you look at it, it's just a two-word sentence. Therefore, repent. It's the shortest of all the solutions given in the seven letters. And it's a relatively simple principle, right? But it's one that so many people lack to practice. Many churches lack to practice it. When there's false teaching or sin from the inside, we must carefully and lovingly but willingly pursue church discipline so that the church is protected, but also so that the individual hopefully is restored to a right relationship with God and the people in the church. Of course, Matthew 18 details the procedure and the authority for a church to practice this and Obviously, don't have time to, to dive into that, but I encourage you to read through that. But discipline in the church, it's, it's often not very easy. It's, it's not enjoyable, but it is necessary at times. And in fact, it's, it's loving, right? It's loving for us to practice church discipline and always do so with the hope of restoration. And, and really, the first step of that is if, is if we see a brother or a sister in sin, we just, we go to them personally, right, one-on-one, -on -one, and we... We confront them in love. And nine times out of ten, that, that usually solves the problem. But you can read Matthew 18 for the further details of that if, you, if you're not familiar with it. Next, let's look at the church in Thyatira. We can see what results, again, when false teaching and sin go unchecked. So there's a little bit of a progression that starts to build here. And, and number four here, I think the takeaway for us, the resolution for us, is to discern carefully. Discern carefully. Verse 18, to the church of the to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. MacArthur summarizes this situation well. He says, what was beginning to have happen in Pergamum has come to full bloom in Thyatira. If the church married the world in Pergamum and Thyatira, they were celebrating anniversaries. If compromise had begun in Pergamum, it had taken over in Thyatira. And we can see that progression by noticing the differences between verse 14 and verse 20. In Pergamum, if you look at verse 14, some only held to the false teaching, right? In Thyatira, though, verse 20 there was active false teaching and they had begun to practice sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. So there's that progression there and the difference between the two. And, and the lesson or the resolution comes from verse 24. To the rest of you in Thyatira, verses 24 and 25 actually, who do not hold this teaching. So there's a group there that discerned what was going on and they didn't hold to the teaching. To the rest of you who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. So some there were able to discern the false teaching, and they did not learn those deep things of Satan. They held fast to the truth. And I believe this is a warning about careful discernment. And think about it, right? If we do a good job with careful discernment, it's, it can certainly help down the road when we think about church discipline. 
But 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22, it teaches us that the responsibility, it's the responsibility of every Christian to be discerning. Test everything, it says. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. John, again, issues a similar warning in 1 John 4, 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Discernment's not an option for Christians. It's a requirement. Discernment has been called the key to a church's spiritual survival. And in this day and age, if we're to survive, we must discern carefully so that we may not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about uh, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Ephesians 4, right? And things like wokeness and critical race theory and intersectionality, there are a few examples that have captivated and are destroying churches. And of course, there's more traditional schemes like health, wealth, and prosperity and uh, can't forget about things like Gnosticism and legalism, which are still making inroads into churches. And the key here is not necessarily to be versed on, on each and every one of these issues. Rather, our discernment, true discernment, comes from knowing the truth. In its simplest definition, discernment is nothing more than the ability to recognize truth from error and right from wrong. This is what those few were able to do in Thyatira. If you know the truth well, it doesn't really matter what the next doctrinal fad or heresy is because you'll be able to recognize it. You don't need seminary necessarily to teach you everything there is to know about some false or erroneous doctrine. All you need is biblical truth, careful discernment. It comes from knowing scripture. Now, if you want to pursue seminary and spend time learning about all the reasons why, you know, Islam is, is a false religion or whatever, that, that's great. You should learn. We should learn what we can, right? But, but that can, my point is that can never replace how well we know the truth. Many of you have heard the illustration about how bank tellers are trained to detect counterfeit money, right? They don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits because there's too many. They're just trained really, really well. They study the genuine bills until they master the look and feel of the real thing so that when they see the bogus money, they recognize it. And the problem today is that most people in most churches, they don't read their Bibles and they don't know the truth, so they don't recognize what is fake. And there are so many fakes and they can't recognize them because they haven't spent the time studying the real thing. And then some form of false teaching kind of sneaks its way in, right? And because it sounds loving and, and practical and nice, they're seduced into believing it, and then they're carried away. And then those of us that recognize the deception, we attempt to, to, uh, to help them to see it, and we're considered out of touch and unloving and, and stuck in our own unrelevant ways. I mean, that's a sad breakdown, but that's how it happens. So the call for discernment is clear, and, and as important as it's, and it's as important as it's ever been, especially as we head into this new year. Something new is going to come. It may be the same old stuff. It may be something new, but it's going to come. And we have to be carefully discerning these things as a church. And, of course, we have to remember that as we, as we practice church discipline, as we practice careful discernment, we have to love generously as we do it. So my encouragement is just to make sure you're reading Scripture, right? Make sure that you are holding everything accountable to the Word of God. Make sure you have constant fellowship with other believers and are allowing them the freedom and the space to speak into your life. And by the way, every one of those things can be done by getting involved in core groups or community groups here at Crossroad, right? 
Shameless plug. But seriously, that's why we have these groups set up, so those exact things can happen. You get into scripture, you have accountability, you have people speaking into your life, you're part of a biblical community. And you're not on your own, you're doing it with others. All right, number five. We got this one, two more. You guys with me? They'll go a little quicker, I think. Revelation 3, thank you, Tamara. Tamara's with me. All right, Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So number five is a call to remember daily. Remember daily. And what's interesting about the situation in Sardis is it's basically the opposite of what's going on in Smyrna. Okay? Smyrna, they were being put to death through persecution, and because of their faithful suffering, they were alive. In Sardis, they have the reputation of being alive, but they're dead. So it's, it's kind of an opposite situation. And by the way, Lord Jesus Christ calling your church a dead church is about the worst thing that can be said of you. Apparently Sardis was, was once, they were once something quite special, right? They, at one point they were a great church. But now they're kind of running on the fumes of their past. And, and again, remember, I've tried to point this out. Have you kind of noticed the, the downward spiral, right? From Ephesus to Pergamum to Thyatira and now to Sardis, right? Ephesus had lost their first love. And then there was public sin and failure to remove the false teaching. And then there was the practice of sin and false teaching. And finally, here at Sardis, there's spiritual death. It's almost like John, through the Holy Spirit, kind of wants to make a point, I think. The people in Sardis, they were simply going through the motions. They were performing deeds and, and resting on their previous accomplishments. Simply put, they were like statues in a museum. They were made to look good on the outside, but they were completely hollow on the inside. And the solution that Jesus gives them is to remember. Remember what? Remember their past achievements? No, that's the mistake they were already making. No, the solution was to remember God's word and to keep it. That's what Christ says. He says, remember what you received and heard, keep it. In Sardis, the, the past was simply a platform to stand on and to show how great they were. They had largely forgotten once, what once made them a great church, which was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have to remember daily what we received and heard, right? Each and every day we, we keep those things. We go back to God's word and we, we do what it says. That's the spiritual life and spiritual renewal is not, a, it's not rocket science, right? We, we're renewed day by day as we go back to God's word and we, we see what it says and we learn what it says and we obey what we read. So remember daily the gospel of your salvation, it's the gospel that got us to where we are today, and it's the gospel that will bring us to completion. Number six, endure patiently. Verse seven, chapter three, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word, 
about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So again, like Smyrna, Philadelphia is the only other church that doesn't receive a rebuke from the Lord. Were they perfect? No, right? There's no perfect church, but they were a faithful and loyal church. He says they had little power, meaning that they probably had smaller numbers and less money. Yet they were, people were being saved and the church was faithful and the gospel was moving forward. And why is that? Christ says it's because they kept his word. Maybe, I think, maybe Philadelphia is the example of what Christ commanded in Sardis, right? Remember the word and keep it? I think Philadelphia is maybe the example. Specifically, they kept the command to endure patiently through all the trials and difficulties a faithful church would face. And again, this point's quick and simple. It's a reminder to be patient and endure. And in doing so, we can look forward to an open door which no one can shut, as he says right there in the... Uh, the beginning of the verse, in the beginning of the letter. References to open the doors in the New Testament mean opportunities for the gospel to go forth. And, and I actually believe, I, I think we've seen this happen in our church in the last several months, right? We've, we've endured things patiently, we've been faithful, and doors have opened for us, maybe people in the community or people coming in, but we've had opportunities to share the gospel. So if we're willing to endure patiently together like Philadelphia, I think those opportunities are going to continue to come. And again, I think we, we for the most part, we've, we've done that. We've kept God's word. We've loved generously, and God has continued to give us opportunities. And I have no doubt we're going to continue to be faced with circumstances that are going to challenge and test our church this year. No doubt about that. And as those come, let's, let's remember to and commit to patient endurance together. All right, last one, number seven, the last letter, last resolution is from Laodicea. Revelation 3, verse 14 to 20. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous and repent. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. So again, the downward spiral that we've been kind of tracking picks back up at Laodicea, right? In Sardis, there were at least a few true believers left and still to be found, but in Laodicea, according to what we have, what we know, what's written here, is there were none at this point. This letter's harsh. It's the most threatening of the seven. I would also say it's the most evangelistic. Many of you are probably aware of the metaphor that Christ uses about being hot and cold and, um, and how that relates to Laodicea's water supply. I would encourage you, if, if you're not familiar with that, it's really fascinating, but go study that. I can't really do that justice um, this morning. But to quickly break it down, the reference to hot would be people who are genuinely and obviously saved, okay? Those are hot people. The cold people are genuinely and obviously not saved. 
the lukewarm, they're the worst kind of people from Christ's perspective. They, they make him sick, he says. They're not genuinely saved, but they don't necessarily reject the gospel. They're like the Pharisees or the Jews, that, that, that they may attend church, they may practice at religion, but they do not know Christ. And yet to these types of people, to all of these cold people, lukewarm people, Christ offers salvation. He uses a, another metaphor by taking three important aspects of the Laodicean culture. He, Laodicea was a wealthy city, so Christ offers them spiritual wealth, right? Verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. He then references their famed uh, wool trade. They were well known for stained black wool. And he offers them white garments instead, which is a reference to being redeemed. Uh, it's actually uh, referred to many times throughout the rest of the book of Revelation there. And then finally, Laodicea was known for their some of their medicinal uh, items, specifically their eye salve, and Christ offers them spiritual eye salve so that they may see. He then tells them to be zealous and repent, right? For it's only repentance that leads to life, as Acts says. So this morning, as we think about these things, Christ knows your temperature, right? Are you cold or are you lukewarm here today? And the same offer to the unbelieving Laodiceans, Laodiceans is, is open to you as well. Christ offers you saving faith that's more precious than gold. He offers to take your filthy stained garments, your sin and your shame in exchange for white robes of pure righteousness. He offers to remove your blindness so that you may see the kingdom of God. It's because he lived a perfectly sinless, unstained life. And at his death, he took your sin upon himself so that he could give you his righteousness and save you from eternal judgment in hell. And because God accepted that sacrifice, he was raised from the dead, giving victorious eternal life in heaven. It's a free offer all by grace to anyone who will repent and believe. And that's the offer to you this morning. And as Christ says to the Laodiceans, I, I say to you, I say, be zealous and repent if you've never done so. Believe on Christ. Ask him to save you for all who call upon the Lord will be saved. And church, I, I think if the call from Christ to an unbelieving church is to repent zealously, I believe his resolution for us is to share zealously. That's point number seven, share zealously. Right? If he's calling an unrepentant, unbelieving church to repent zealously, I think we, a believing church, a repentant church, I think we ought to be sharing zealously. And when we commit to doing so, we carry his voice to the door of a sinner's heart. Look at verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you really believe that in 2022 God can still save people? I'm waiting. Yes, right? Believe God can still save people this year. If you believe that, then who's, who's your one? That's what that last line for under number seven is for. It's for you to write a name down. Who's the one person today that you can start to pray for and invest in and invite so that you can share? Again, there's a space right there for you to write a name down. As a church, can we commit to these resolutions as we do life together? I have great hope for us because I've seen so many of you doing these things on an individual level, but we're more than a bunch of individual Christians, right? We're a body. And as we pursue these things together, I have great expectations for this year and what it will bring by God's grace. Let's pray together.
Gracious Heavenly Father, I first of all thank you, Lord, before my church and the, your incredible mercy and grace upon me to give me the, the words and the sound needed to speak this morning. But more so, God, we just thank you for your word, for how it instructs us, God, for something written so long ago, and yet it's still perfectly relevant and perfectly applicable, and it gives us a guide as we head into this new year. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take each of these things hard, that we would evaluate how we're doing them personally, but also as we think about doing life together as a church family. Lord, how can we, how can we love? How can we suffer together? How can we, how can we endure, Lord? How can we share zealously all these things, Father? Give us, Lord, just give us wisdom as we go into this new year, Father. No matter what comes, no matter what uh, the next variant is, no matter what, uh, what the next theological fallacy that comes our way that starts to captivate people, Lord, no matter, no matter what the circumstances, no matter the persecution, if there's any, no matter what, God, would we be a church that gathers together around your word, that we keep your word, that we repent when we sin, Father, and that we live to be and bear a witness for you, for your name and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.